This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading My Antonia by Willa Cather. It tells the story of Antonia Shimmerda, the daughter of Bohemian or Czech immigrants to the United States. The family moves into a sod house on a farm outside of Red Cloud, Nebraska, where they struggle to survive. We follow Antonia through her childhood on the farm, years spent in town working as a hired girl and later as a wife and mother. We see her through the memories and eyes of a childhood friend, Jim Burden, who grew up to be a railroad lawyer. The book is full of descriptions of the Nebraska Plains, prairie being transformed into farmland, observations of the immigrant families that were drawn to the area, and the prejudices and class differences at play in these small towns. Here is an excerpt from the book. Antonia is four years older than Jim. They become close friends. He gives her English lessons, and they spend hours exploring and playing together on the prairie. All those fall afternoons were the same, but I never got used to them. As far as we could see, the miles of copper-red grass were drenched in sunlight that was stronger and fiercer than at any other time of the day. The blonde cornfields were red gold. The haystacks turned rosy and threw long shadows. The whole prairie was like the bush that burned with fire and was not consumed. That hour always had the exultation of victory, of triumphant ending, like a hero's death. Heroes who died young and gloriously. It was a sudden transfiguration, a lifting up of day. How many an afternoon Antonia and I have trailed along the prairie under that magnificence, and always two long black shadows flitted before us or followed after, dark spots on the ruddy grass. We had been silent a long time, and the edge of the sun sank nearer and nearer the prairie floor, when we saw a figure moving on the edge of the upland, a gun over his shoulder. He was walking slowly, dragging his feet along as if he had no purpose. We broke into a run to overtake him. My papa's sick all the time, Tony panted as we flew. He not look good, Jim. As we neared Mr. Shimmerda, she shouted, and he lifted his head and peered about. Tony ran up to him, caught his hand, and pressed it against her cheek. She was the only one of his family who could rouse the old man from the torpor in which he seemed to live. He took the bag from his belt and showed us three rabbits he had shot, looked at Antonia with a wintry flicker of a smile, and began to tell her something. That's just a short selection from My Antonia by Willa Cather. And we will be discussing the book with our expert readers in just a few minutes to help us get started. Melissa Homestead is here. She is a professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. She is also author of, most recently, The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So take us back in time in your life. When did you first encounter my Antonia? Well, I was a senior in high school in Pennsylvania, in the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania. And uh, my favorite high school English teacher was giving me advice about college application essays. And one said, you are going to have a dinner party in 1902 and invite three people and tell us why. And I said, I don't know who I should invite. And Mrs. Reese said, well, I think you would like Will Cather and Edith Wharton. You should read them. And I ignored the Edith Wharton advice, but I went to the Bethlehem Public Library and I checked out O Pioneers and My Antonia and stayed up all weekend reading them. I was just obsessed. But then I read a, I read an encyclopedia essay article about her from my World Book Encyclopedia that made it sound like she wasn't very interesting. 
especially as she was nobody in 1902. And then I didn't write the application essay, but I just became obsessed. And I just read my way all the way through most of Willa Cather in high school and then started all over again in college. All right. And obviously this obsession has lasted a very long time. Tell us a little bit about who Willa Cather was, because while maybe she wasn't very interesting in 1902, she was very, very interesting later on. Well, even in 1902, I think she was interesting, but she was born in the Back Creek Valley area of Virginia, which is near Winchester. Uh, And then she spent about the first decade of her life in Virginia. Then her immediate family moved to Webster County, Nebraska, which is in south central Nebraska, when she was about 10. Um, And other members, other branches of the family had already migrated there in the previous decade from Virginia. She went to the University of Nebraska. First, she had to take a preparatory year because the Red Cloud High School was not uh, rigorous enough for university admission. And then she received her degree in 1895. She spent about a year just kind of floundering, looking for something to do. She had actually written for the local newspaper her last two years in college, and she was hired to be an editor of a regional women's magazine in Pittsburgh. So then she spent 10 years in Pittsburgh before she was hired by McClure's magazine in 1906 uh, and moved to New York City. So in 1918, she had been away from Nebraska for a good 20 years. So she has something of the distance that Jim Burden, the narrator, who that's the voice that you were reading, he leaves uh, He leaves Nebraska after he studied at the university for a couple of years and ends up in New York City. And he is remembering something that's distant from him. So she'd already had quite a various experience. She'd also taught high school English and Latin in Pittsburgh after the magazine and some newspaper work. And she left magazine editing in 1911, 1912 to be a full-time novelist. And so My Antonia was her third novel. So she was doing all of these things. I mean, she published this novel in 1918. Would you consider her to be a trailblazer doing things that, that women didn't traditionally do at that time? Not really. I would say that there are a lot of women who wrote and published novels in the 19th century. They actually kind of dominated the market for fiction. And there were other women who had edited magazines. Um, I think that working at McClure's was a different kind of work. Uh, So editing the regional women's magazine was probably more typical for women who worked as editors, but working at McClure's was more unusual. And she definitely thought of herself as distinct from and set apart from those earlier women who were not as serious as artists as she considered herself to be. When I first encountered this book, I was 14 years old. And one of the things that that kind of blew my mind, I had read a lot of that sort of pioneer or or prairie narrative. And this book seemed to me so much more real and raw. There are a lot of really dark, difficult things that happen in this book. How was it received when it was published? Well, it's funny, Cather later claimed that no reviewers understood it except one or two, which is really not at all true. It got very positive reviews. I think one of the things that happened later was that she got resentful that everyone expected her to do the same thing again. But it was very well received and she was recognized as a major voice in fiction. Um, She also felt a little embarrassed at how old she was by the time she published her first novel in 1912. She was in her 30s and she felt like she should have actually had her success much sooner than she did. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I guess we're all a little bit behind by by her standards. Um, 
There are things about this book that that make it feel like it is very much of its time, and we'll talk about some of those as this conversation goes on. But it also feels to me that it is ahead of its time in some important ways. And and one of those is these really deep, respectful sketches of women and and really painting them with their full personalities and their ambitions and limitations. What are your thoughts about that? Well, certainly I would say that the depictions of the European immigrant pioneer women are exactly like that. Um, A lot of the American, in quotation marks, the people who call themselves American, they are pretty flat, actually, or even there's one wonderful passage when Jim Burton has moved from the farm into town. And he says that, you know, when you danced with the American girls, you know, their bodies below their necks basically asked, but one thing not to be disturbed, right? They had no muscle, they had no character. Uh, But it's the young women who have to struggle out on the prairies first with their families and then who come into town that really are the most striking characters in the story because of all the hard work that they've done. Why do you think this book did strike such a chord then and has endured in the way that it has? Well, I think for its time, actually, it was in some ways pretty progressive in embracing European immigrants um, the southern Euro- southern and eastern European immigrants were considered to be less desirable uh, by the time the book was published. So she was embracing a kind of diversity. It's a very limited sort of diversity. Um, I think it has endured because of these strong female characters. And I know certainly when feminist criticism really started to flourish in English departments in the 1970s, it was embracing the strong women characters is really where everybody landed, right? And the ways that they transgress ideas about what's appropriate for women. You first encountered this book when you were a teenager. You have obviously read it many, many times. How has it changed over time for you? Well, I think I I find very different things in it just about every time. I would say at some point, you know, early on, I was swept up in the kind of grand romance and the strong female characters. Then I went back to it once I got into, well, I became very frustrated with Jim Burden early on. And I, I still am frustrated with Jim Burden. It got a lot more complicated and certainly a lot darker. I remember after going back to read it in my 20s, after not reading it for a few years, I was like, what is going on here? You know, there's there's, you know, there's, there's sexual assault. There's, you know, a man who throws himself into a threshing machine. There's this story about wolves and throwing a bride and groom to the wolves. There's this gruesome suicide, right? So there's a, the, the darkness kind of came out when I read it more, but even though I've read it, I lost track a long time ago. I've read it at least a hundred times, but every once in a while, there are things that jump out at me as for example, uh, when they had at Red Cloud uh, and the uh, National Willow Cather Center has an annual spring conference and they were just doing sort of reading aloud about local landscapes from various books by season. And they they were reading passages from My Antonia with some accompanying music. And I just remember thinking, Galardia, 
Gallardia is a word in Myantinia, right? So the she's you know it's very specific about species of plants. Uh, Cather herself was an amateur botanist, so just the, the the specificity, just picking up on those words that I had sort of read past. There are parts that I can quote, but there were things that still I hadn't noticed through all those readings. Well, I'm sure you've read it more times than our other expert readers today, but we will delve into this novel even deeper in just a moment. I am talking with Melissa Homestead. She's a professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. We are talking about My Antonia by Willa Cather. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading My Antonia by Willa Cather, a classic work published in 1918 that tells the stories of immigrant families near Red Cloud, Nebraska, and focuses on Antonia Shimmerda, a young bohemian or Czech woman, as she makes her way through the world. With me to talk about the book is Melissa Homestead, professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. And it's time now to introduce our other expert readers. Cecilia Rokusik is director and CEO. CEO of the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library in Cedar Rapids. Hello, Cecilia. Hello. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And I, I think all of us today really first encountered this book as teenagers, but you were assigned it at school. Tell me a little bit about the first time you read the book. Well, thank you, Charity. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as a seventh grader, uh, going to a, a Catholic uh, school, the seventh grade was still considered elementary. That was before junior high days were christened. And uh, we were required to read it as part of our civics class. Uh, civics was a required course in both seventh and eighth grade. And so uh, I remember uh, that we read it. And uh, it was, I think, two parts uh, that we read it, or two reasons. One was that uh, I grew up in a Czech community of Tabor, South Dakota, more appropriately called Thabor, if you speak the language, but they call it Tabor. And so given the uh, Czech bohemian focus of the book, that was one of the reasons that I know of the good nuns. Uh, we talked about that a lot. And then secondly, the community that I grew up in was uh, settled by immigrants. My great, great grandparents, for example, lived in a covered wagon for two years years on the prairie uh, land of South Dakota. So um, I think that that was, uh, you know, for us a requirement. And, and I know that now they no longer uh, teach civics and now it's junior high, of course. But uh, that's and then uh, I am a graduate of the University of Nebraska for my master's degree. And I recall fondly the focus uh, on my Antonia and the spirit of the Nebraskans and pride that they have in the book. And so that was reinforced as well as a graduate student in Nebraska. So coming back to the book this time, tell me what struck you. Uh, well, you know, that's a, a great question because I had kind of put it aside. It's on my bookshelf and I'd kind of put it aside and have not read it in years until um, uh, we uh, were going to do this. And I think that um, uh, two things struck me. Number one, a much 
deeper insight into all of the things that Melissa pointed out and many more. And secondly, very powerful for me was the immigration story. Uh, and, and, and I reread that section several times about the immigration and the hardships and as, as Bohemians coming to, uh, from a land to a, that they knew so well, a beautiful landscape to this, this unknown Midwest prairie and, um, and, and being um, uh, kind of called servants, but they've, and it's interesting to this day uh, in my hometown, we call it hired help. And that was very pronounced in the book, hired help. And, and they really wanted to be seen as hired, not servants, because that was a negative, especially from the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, a very negative kind of thing. And so uh, I, that immigration story and, and now being president and CEO of the National Czech and Slovak Museum uh, and very much involved in issues of freedom and democracy and also the immigrant story today, uh, it, it made me reflect on the fact that immigration issues are similar today. They're just in a different time period, but the same kinds of struggles, the same kind of discrimination, the same kind of hardships. Uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, when the burial site for um, Antonia's father, they couldn't find a burial site. You know, the, the Norwegians didn't want him. The Catholics didn't want him because he committed suicide. And so I, I guess to answer your question, it brought for me a much deeper meaning. And I came out of it saying to my staff, in fact, everyone should read the book now as we talk about immigration in the 21st century. Uh, it really should be. And, and I started at seventh grade. You were at 14, Charity. Uh, I think it should be something that we really, for everyone. Well, and Leo, you also were assigned this book in school. Leo Landis is state curator with the State Historical Society of Iowa. And, and so you had a similar experience to Cecilia. Maybe you were a little bit older when you first read the book, right? That's correct. I was a uh, 15-year-old in the spring of 1982 and at uh, high school in central Iowa at, at Dowling High School in, in West Des Moines, so a Catholic high school, uh, much like Cecilia's experience. And, and it wasn't because, you know, the Antonia is Catholic that we read it. It was just viewed as, as great literature. And so I think it was the book we read before, Grapes of Wrath. And it, it struck me as being just a compelling story as, as I was thinking about it. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of deep memories of the book. I just remembered enjoying it when we first discussed whether I, I might be able to be a reader for it. And so I, I knew I enjoyed the book in 1982, uh, that it was, it was great writing. And that was part of what I, I loved about literature in general is just good, clean writing that was so descriptive. Uh, appreciated that about it back in high school, but also uh, in the reread that I got to do was, was just so enjoyable as well. And some of those themes that we've already talked about, uh, but also knowing what I know now, having gone through a museum career that was at places like Living History Farms, where I did some of the work that either Ambrose Shimerda would have done or that uh, some of those hired girls would have done because they did work in the field. It's like having a much deeper appreciation for some of those experiences than I did as a 15 year old. So oh, that, sure. that was insightful. <laughs> well, and you could, maybe you can help us understand this time period a little bit better. Of course. I mean, I think most of us who, who grow up in Iowa grow up with sort of the mythology of this, pioneer period. Of course, this book takes place in Nebraska, which is a little bit different landscape and and it's farther west. So it has a little bit different history than Iowa. Leo, 
tell us what what we're experiencing in in the world of Myantonia. Sure, this is post Civil War United States. So uh, the Homestead Act has now come into effect. It, it, it was passed during the Civil War, and so land is becoming available in Nebraska and Dakota Territory and parts of Kansas. That as long as you homestead for the appropriate period, you can gain that land for free, essentially. So you've got that pull factor bringing both people from the eastern states and from overseas. And and before the war, the big immigrant groups in the United States were primarily Germans and Irish with the Irish potato famine, especially in the 1840s and early 1850s. But as we've discussed, post-Civil War, as Uh, there's the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, so you get a push out of some of the Scandinavian countries. And of course, in Iowa, you'd had some Danish and Czech and Norwegian and Swedish immigration before the Civil War, but really those immigrant groups in Iowa and Nebraska really start coming into the states in a much bigger way. And so you have the the push factor of a Franco-Prussian War in 1870, 1871, and also the free land and the kind of chain migration that you get or the uh, collegial migration of saying, hey, I know the... uh, one family is there. Let's follow them and, and make our uh, success story in, in this new country, too. Yeah, well, and in, in my Antonia, there are the Bohemians. There are also Norwegians. There are also Russians. And, you know, so there there's a real mix of different immigrant families. And I think uh, you were talking about just that, that bold writing and description, Leo. And, and Melissa, maybe you want to jump in on that a little bit. I think that's one of the things that, that made the book so compelling to me as a 14-year-old. And again, now is just how descriptive. You really feel like you are in the landscape. You really understand at least feel like you understand what the families are experiencing. What are your thoughts about that, Melissa? Well, first, I just wanted to say that the largest immigrant group in Nebraska was Germans. Uh, So the Czechs were actually a relatively small immigrant group, but they occupy an outsized place in Willa Cather's literary imagination because of particular friendships she had, in particular with Annie Pavelka, who was the prototype for Antonia Shemerda. Well, I think that uh, actually, Ant- uh, My Antonia is quite different from a lot of her other novels, which are much more compact and have a lot less of the detail that everybody is talking about here, that it really is just kind of chock full of all sorts of extra characters and descriptive detail. Um, and a lot of it does come through Jim Burden. I know we'll talk about that more later, but so it is Jim Burden, you know, as a particular person, you know, he's, he's a middle-aged man, he's left, he's in a bad marriage, right? So for him, all of that detail has to do with what he remembers from an idealized past. Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, Cecilia, I, I guess... Uh, you grew up in South Dakota, again, a somewhat similar landscape to Nebraska. What were your thoughts about just that, that those powerful descriptions that she has of the land and of the lives? Well, I think that that's a, one of the main, main uh, uh, treasures of the book are the descriptive uh, descriptions as portrayed by the narrator. But I think uh, what what, I, what struck me now again in reading it was the fact that um, how Antonia uh, is 
adopting herself into this new place. And she's almost, I felt the whole family was being looked at as almost being uh, somewhat ignorant and, and less able to adapt, but yet they were so powerful in terms of, they were almost almost richer than the people who had settled there that were living there in Nebraska. And she was able to overcome that. But I think people looked at them uh, and they were, you know, in the land, in the small community, engaged with the people. And yet they were looked down upon as being somewhat ignorant and somewhat less um, uh, capable. Yet they uh, were really coming from a very rich land uh, to this new settlement. So I think that what I got from it was the fact that uh, actually the land is not that dissimilar from what we would now consider to be the Czech Republic, except that there were no trees and that it was so barren because if you would look at, uh, but the landscape was, you know, somewhat flatter and, um, but and gently rolling when there were some little knolls. But uh, I think that for the family, the barrenness of the land was so incredible. And uh, they, they were having a hard time really adjusting in, in, in my feel as I read it. But I think that their strength and determination, and that's what I think Willa, Power, Willa Cather is so powerful in, is her ability to describe that and see why they succeeded. That's what I see. They succeeded because of this determination to overcome all of this. And to me, that is so alive in this book. Let's talk about Antonia herself, because we are going to have to talk about Jim Burden because she is seen through his eyes. But let's talk about this character that, I mean, I think everybody who reads this book falls in love with Antonia head over heels. I think we're supposed to. She is told in, in such an idealized way. And Melissa, you had already mentioned she was inspired by a, a real post person, right? Yes, yes, by Annie Pavelka. And a lot of what you read... Uh, is based pretty closely on her family's experiences. Although Cather in letters, sometimes she says, oh, no, that's I, I don't really base any characters on real people. But then in other letters, she does say, oh, yes, you know, there are certain characters, including her. But she <laughs> makes, you know, she makes a lot of she makes a lot of changes as well. But but her, um, you know, her experience having her first child out of wedlock, for example, tracks with Annie Pavelka. Um, and the experience of her family sort of finally, after great struggle, uh, finally succeeding. Um, and when she also then finally succeeds, you know, with her husband and with her children, a lot of that is very close to the life of, of Annie Pavelka. And the place, too, actually, if you go to Red Cloud, Nebraska, um, outside of Red Cloud, in the countryside, the Willa Cather, National Willa Cather Center owns the Pavelka Farmstead. And it is just like it's described in the novel. It's really an extraordinary experience to be on that land. Wow. Well, and Cecilia, I mean, there are so many beautiful descriptions of Antonia, her red cheeks, her bright eyes, her quick steps, her quick mind, her enthusiasm, you know, everything about her is compelling. And I can imagine that as a young girl of bohemian origin yourself, <laughs> reading about Antonia, uh, that idealization probably was very powerful for you. It was. And, you know, I think that that is a young person. That was probably the most powerful. We would talk about her and, you know, with Anna Pavelka. And that's such a Czech name that is so deeply Czech. And and we uh, again, 
the meanings that I have from it now uh, were very different from that seventh grader who saw this young Czech girl who was just hopping along the prairie and having fun and enjoying the earth and, and helping on the farm. And, and those kinds of things were very important because that's really who uh, most of us could relate to. And, you know, the energy, the, 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 and again, if, if you um, know, uh, check young women and, and uh, young girls that grew up on a farm, they were like, they're spirited. And, and I remember going back to, to uh, the Czech Republic for the first time in 1993, right? Shortly after the break of communism and uh, independent countries. And when we went to the farms, they were, everybody was, uh, you know, they had these cooperative farms and then they got their own farms back. And I, I thought of that book, but I never came home. And now I wish I would have read it in 93 after I visited, but I never read it back then uh, again. So um, you're right. There is that spirit and love of nature. I think love of the outdoors and love of nature that is so profound. Yeah, well, and she overcomes so many challenges and barriers. Leo, what what do you love about Antonia? I'll just assume that you love her. <laughs> I, it, her <laughs> eyes are what jumped out to me, and that's really the very first scene is when Jim is taking the train uh, to Nebraska with his uh, escort and is told there's this group of uh, immigrants in the adjacent car and that this girl has beautiful brown eyes and that makes who's just a few years older than Jim and makes him blush and that setting of her you know deep dark brown eyes enchanting sparkling eyes jumped out at me from the beginning and, and so stuck with you as she's further described through the book. Right. So you fell in love with her the moment that Jim Burden fell in love with her, which brings us to Jim Burden. We need to talk about this, this voice in the book. So in, in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, Jim Burden encounters Willa Cather on a train, the author on a train. And they talk about this woman that they both knew in their childhood. And Jim goes on to write an account of Antonia from his perspective. And Melissa, we only have a moment before we get to our break, but just give me your gut reaction to Jim Burton. Well, Jim Burton, I'm much more sympathetic to him than I used to be because I am now full of nostalgia. So when I hit my 40s, I got him more. But his romanticizing of Antonia and his problematic take on her sexuality until she becomes the sort of fecund mind of life at the end, which is glorious, but also pretty reductive version of her. Yeah, I, I find him endlessly frustrating. Okay, we will be back in just a moment. We are talking about My Antonia by Willa Cather. And with me today, Melissa Homestead. She is a professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. Cecilia Rakustic, director and CEO of the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library in Cedar Rapids. And Leo Landis, state curator with the State Historical Society of Iowa. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking about My Antonia by Willa Cather. It was published in 1918. It's a classic that tells the stories of immigrant families near Red Cloud, Nebraska, and focuses on the Shimmerda family, in particular, Antonia Shimmerda, a young Bohemian or Czech woman. She makes her way through childhood, being a hired girl in town, and then into her adulthood in the book. We see it all through the eyes of the narrator, Jim Burden, who was a neighbor and childhood friend of hers. He becomes a railroad lawyer later in life. With me to talk about the book, Cecilia Rakusic, director and CEO of the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library in Cedar Rapids, Leo Landis, state curator with the State Historical Society, of Iowa, and Melissa Homestead, professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. And Melissa, okay, you, you have a lot of problems with Jim Burden, the narrator. And I, I will say that the first time I read this book, I didn't think twice. It's fine with me that this man is telling this woman's story. That was fine with me as a 14-year-old girl. And then reading it this time, I, I kept asking why. And I also kept thinking, okay, why did Willa Cather choose to tell the story in this way? And I don't think she necessarily ever answered that question fully, but what's your theory? Well, you know, in the original version of the introduction, she says that they're both going to write down their memories of Antonia Shimerda. Um, And then Jim Burden shows up at her apartment in New York, where he also lives with this bulging legal portfolio. And here, here is what I wrote about Antonia. And and then the narrator the, of the introduction says, but I never wrote my account. Uh-huh. Uh, so there seems to be this strange failure on the part of the woman writer. Uh, but she also does say that she was interested in what he thought of her because he had greater access as a boy and a young man to experiences and to seeing Antony in certain contexts that she as a girl did not have. And I think he's also supposed to be a little older than her. So uh, so Willa Cather, in fact, was too young to have had the same experiences he has as basically her peer in age. So Annie Pavelka was older than Willa Cather in a way that so it, it kind of makes sense. Um, and, I, you know, she she chose an artistic strategy. Uh, she also talks a lot about letters about how having brothers um, that and brothers being her age cohort, right? She was the same age as her brothers and then there's sort of a gap and then the sisters are younger, that she was used to seeing the world sort of through their eyes and lived with them as peers. Um, So, you know, she did it. But the thing is, is that in 1926, um, she actually revised the introduction. Her publisher said, well, the stereotype plates are wearing out. We're going to do a new edition, get some good sales by sprucing things up. So if you make some real changes, we can make a splash. And he suggested that she cut out the part about uh, the the female author because he said it does no good for the reader to consider the question of whether it would have better been told by a woman. And she did actually cut it out and she cut out a lot else too, more that he didn't say. Uh, So it became a different book. And in fact, the first time I read it, the library copy I read it in did not have the long introduction where you have Willa Cather talking to Jim Burden. It was just more, we are two people. He decided to write it down. Here it is. Right. So she did cut a lot of that out and took the question away. So it's, it's an interesting question that I've been thinking about since I wrote my undergraduate honors thesis and I still don't have an answer. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't think any any way to rewrite it could have taken that question away, at least once you reach a certain point in your life. And and also, of course, we're looking at this through the lens of 2021. We're not looking at it through the lens of 1918 or 1926. So definitely a question that I had, although he does seem to have, I think, some, well, definitely a reverence for these immigrant girls because he doesn't just write about Antonia. He, he writes about the Norwegian immigrants and, you know, women from other places. And he does have this this reverence for them. He also tells us or shows us how vulnerable they are, how their reputations can be sullied. But also, you know, we see their vulnerability. There are stories of, although not not said in exactly so many words, but these hired girls getting raped and being exploited and even trafficked by by certain characters. So he has some insight. He also steps back from it. He he sort of you know he 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 can't deal with it, right? When he and actually, so a, a history PhD student at the University of Nebraska stumbled into a legal case file about Annie Pavelka, the prototype, who was actually raped and who sued under Nebraska law for bastardy uh, rather than rape, which was sort of a civil cause. And then the case had to be dropped but uh, because the child died and there was no longer a child. But this was actually um, a man in the community, a young man, uh, a son of a powerful American family. And he did. I mean, the, the account of the, the trial, though the account of what she says you know, in these legal documents is quite extraordinary. And that's before... Uh, the premarital pregnancy, the child that she had, you know, and so she really was vulnerable. Cather and Cather probably must have known about that, but she did not. She did not write that story. She sort of has the almost sexual assault of Antonia that Jim experiences in her place. And that's and then, you know, and then he he flees. Right. He flees and he he just doesn't want to even talk to her anymore. Her, her perfection has somehow been sullied for him. So, Leo, what do you think of Jim? To me, he is not a bad narrator because he brings a dimension that you wouldn't get if it were a female narrator. The idea that there's danger to these immigrant girls. I mean, the hired girls will lead you to a bad end if you are a Euro-American boy is one of the themes that I see. And you wouldn't have that if it were a woman narrator. And that's part of the danger of immigrants, at least. And, and that's a theme that does. It appears at the very beginning, at least when Jim appears, is Jim's escort says, oh, better that you don't go talk to those immigrants. Immigrants carry disease anyway. So the idea that immigrants are, are dangerous and by having Jim as uh, the male voice gives gives you a different perspective. So uh I, I didn't remember that from my first reading long ago it being an issue, and, and it certainly didn't offend me too much this time through. And, and one last point just to make around Jim as a narrator. I see Antonia as a success from a rural standpoint and from a family standpoint, she's a success. Her life is one of drudgery. Jim's life in New York is one of uh, isolation in a marriage that simply doesn't seem happy. And, and so he's a success by the new world standard monetarily, but not from a happiness standpoint. Yeah, for sure. And he gets to travel the world and see amazing things, but he's very lonely. Um, before we run out of time, I do, we, we have to talk about immigration and Cecilia, I'll let you go first. Obviously, you know, this, this, 
immigrant history in the Midwest is something that you work with a great deal at the National Czech and Slovak Museum. There is a lot of idealization of the immigrant families in this story. And and one of the things, though, that strikes me is also the discrimination against these immigrant families with the full knowledge that the people who are discriminating against them have only been there for a generation at the most anyway. So, Cecilia, in looking at these uh these dynamics between the different people in this community and outside of Red Cloud. What are your thoughts about that? Well, Charity, that is exactly what I said at the beginning in terms of the story and its power as I read it now in in, in the 21st century, uh, that what you said exactly is on point that many of these people who were, you know, having having the negative feelings of discrimination were first generation, born either abroad or born here as a first generation uh, American. And I think that that story from the late 1800s, early 1900s is exactly the same story we have today. And so that I think we look at immigration today in, in the 21st century and all of the issues and the challenges and the, the uh, discussion around immigration. But in fact, the issues of discrimination, housing, uh, acceptance, assimilation into the community, acceptance into the community, those very issues are with us even today. So, you know, I have to sit down and, and really say this is not only a great discussion piece for us as a, a society, but for all ages, for young people, whether we read it in school or whether we read it in high school, in college, university, that we need to be discussing these issues at a community level, at a school level, because really, although things have changed in terms of our economic growth as a country in the United States, and we continue to be the, the melting pot of America, the issues of search for freedom and better life, you know, you think about these immigrants, they came to this land that was barren, as I said, but yet the fact is that the stories and the hardships and the discrimination still prevail today. So what lessons can we learn from my Antonia and what lessons can we bring it to the 21st century and how can we improve it for the future? Well, and of course, we everyone in, involved in this conversation today is a child or grandchild or great-grandchild of immigrants to this country. And, and I do want to mention, and Leo, uh, this period of time that this was written in, Native people had been displaced from the land and murdered just really before this happened, and yet they are invisible in this book. Um, but I think that, you know, as we... This book is seen through a lens of nostalgia, and yet this is kind of a, a very real and raw part of this time that a lot of us have glossed over in our understanding of history. Do you think it's important to understand that discrimination at that time? Well, certainly, and there are, you know, the, the lack of Native peoples who've been removed. That's a story that's overlooked, as you were pointing out. And Nebraska has many Native nations uh, that some that were allowed to stay, but most were removed. And so that's what gave that free land was the removal of native peoples. You also don't see Asians really. And in towns like Hastings, there were Chinese uh, families operating laundries in 1880. So uh, whether Willa Cather had ex experience with Asian families or not, uh, they were in South Central Nebraska at that time. And, and so it really does focus on the Euro-American and the European immigrant story rather than a, a broader immigration story or stories of, of Native peoples and, and Asian immigrants who were critical to the railroad for that matter. Right. 
Well, and even within that Euro-American story, there were the good immigrants, there were the bad immigrants. I mean, we definitely see a lot of that in this story. Especially in the way the book is set up as the Czechs as Catholics opposed to Protestants, either on the Baptist side with the Burdens or Methodist side, can't remember which, or the Lutherans on the Northern European side, those are more acceptable than Catholics in the way Catholicism is depicted at times as, as being to a degree threatening. And, and of course, this is right before then we have the most restrictive immigration law in the nation uh, in 1924. So that gets codified as to who are good immigrants and bad immigrants politically in the United States. Right. Well, and when we know our Iowa history, we also know that um, people were forbidden from speaking any language but English just a, a few years after this book was published, right about that time. So we talked about lack of Native representation, lack of Asian representation. And then there's this strange sort of deeply racist interlude about a black pianist that comes to town, Melissa. I mean, I, I said this novel was in some ways ahead of its time, in some ways very much of its time, and this feels very 1918 to me. Well, it feels even more retrograde than 1918. And in fact, Jim Burden, so when Blind Darno comes to town and he's a blind stride pianist, and he has this whole backstory that he imagines for him or tells about him being on a place that's no longer a plantation under slavery, but might as well be. And there's this whole kind of primitivism of him. There's the whole thing about the size of his head, which is the pseudoscience of craniometry, measuring people's heads to decide what race is better. So, and it's really not just kind of an excursion. It's right in the middle of the novel. And certainly, uh, Jim Barden and Willa Cather are not imagining an African-American presence on the plains. So yeah. there were some black homesteaders, for example, but then they were often later pushed off into the urban areas in Nebraska, mostly into Omaha. So that's not part of what she's embracing. She does embrace the Czech immigrants and she is being progressive on that count. She shows the prejudice, but she shows Jim pushing against the president, uh, the, the, uh, the, discrimination against them. And she is not showing that prejudice, but she, there are definite limits to her vision and excluding African-Americans as part of maybe including these other groups in her vision for the Prairie Pioneers. We are nearly out of time. So I, I want to ask each of you really to tell me why you think this is a book that's still worth reading and, and what you take away from it. Cecilia, I'll let you start. I, I think the main thing that I would like to encourage everyone to read the book and no matter, uh, you know, uh, what age you are and to even have some dialogue at home or in communities, especially a smaller community. So as I reflect upon my own community and uh, that I grew up in of 350 people to have a dialogue about this now would be very rich, I think. So uh, don't think that it was a book from long ago. It's a book for now. Leo, what about you? What resonates with you about this book now, and, and why do you think people should pick it up? It captures that transition of America from a rural to an urban nation at that period of 1880 to 1920. 1920 is the first census where more of the United States lives in town than living on, in rural communities. And so it, it's great at capturing Midwestern history or Eastern Great Plains history and talking about what life was like, what was considered a success, who were the immigrant groups, as Cecilia and Melissa have 
mentioned too. So just a rich story of rural life that most of us don't appreciate the, the way uh, Cather tells it. Melissa, you get the last word. Well, I would say certainly it's an important immigrant story and a place to begin talking. And encountering the past isn't all things that we approve of or things that we want to emulate. And I think even struggling with the question of the absence of indigenous people and the racist depiction of blind Darno are also important parts of encountering the past and thinking about what we want to do with that past and reckoning with the present. And I will still say that I am still madly in love, just like I was in when I was 14 years old, with Antonia and Tiny and Lena and all of these immigrant girls in the book. So thank you all for rereading this book with me and, and for sharing your thoughts today. Thanks. Thank you. Great to be with all three of you. Melissa Homestead is professor of English at the University of Nebraska and director of the Cather Project. Her most recent book is The Only Wonderful Things, The Creative Partnership of Willa Cather and Edith Lewis. Cecilia Rakusic is director and CEO of the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library in Cedar Rapids. And Leo Landis is state curator with the State Historical Society of Iowa. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me, Matt Alvarez, and Rick Brewer. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Charity Nebbe. Mm-hmm.